Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, Donald Trump's fortune. The New York Times has reported that much of it came from his dad, Fred, and that means it came from Brooklyn. Fred Trump was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, developer in Brooklyn by the time we get to World War II. Earlier this month, the New York Times pulled the curtain back on the myth of Donald Trump's wealth. The president has said repeatedly that his father Fred gave him nothing more than a million-dollar loan to get started, as if that was peanuts, which he had to pay back with interest. Well, as we all suspected, that wasn't true. As the Times reports, Fred Trump plied his second son with gifts, cash, jobs, loans, and property that totaled well into the hundreds of millions. He even bailed his son out when his business and investments were tanking. That's okay. That's what some dads do. And it also shouldn't be surprising that Trump, being who Trump is, would lie about it. It didn't comport with the well-coiffed image Trump was trying to sell. But the Times establishes another reason for the lie. Much of this money was transferred in ways that enabled the family to evade hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. A lot of folks have already talked about this since the article hit, so we won't belabor the point. But what we did want to look more closely at was the source of Fred Trump's wealth. Where did his fortune come from? Well, the Brooklyn Eagle once called Fred the Henry Ford of the home building industry, and most of the homes he built were right here in Brooklyn. To tell us more, we're joined by associate professor at Cornell University's City and Regional Planning Department and the author of the forthcoming book, Brooklyn, The Once and Future City, Thomas Campanella. Welcome to 112 Thank UK. You. Thomas, there's been a lot said about how Donald Trump got rich. So, you know, we know that, thanks to the Times. But how did Fred Trump get rich? Fred Trump was a, um, a kind of uh, wunderkind at a very young age, began building, uh, so young that his mom actually had to co-sign loans and other legal documents for him. He was not even 21 years old. This was in Queens, and, uh, and I, I should say that Fred Trump was uh, the, the son of uh, immigrants from Bavaria. He, he actually was, he grew up in, uh, where he was born, under the Third Avenue L in Manhattan. Wow. And, um, but the family moved to Queens. Uh, his father actually did quite well <clears throat> mm-hmm. and left him, uh, left uh, the, the uh, family a number of uh, lots in Queens, in the right. Hollis area that he developed and uh, designed by himself. He took, he took a number of uh, correspondence courses. He later uh, took some classes at uh, Pratt Institute uh, and became a very competent builder. Uh, right. And so that was the beginnings of his foray, I I would say, into the real estate Mm -hmm. field. How did he end up developing here in Brooklyn? Is it just a natural progression? Well, not not really. Uh, (laughs) There was a a mortgage and title company called the House of Lehrenkraus. The House of Lehrenkraus, it was an old German-American company that um, dated back to the the mid-19th century. They went belly up in the mid-1930s, partly because of the Depression, but also because of a lot of um, corruption and uh, cooking of books in the the firm. And uh, there was a fire sale. Trump 
found out about this and was one of the bidders on the remains of the House of Laren Krauss. It's a very long and involved story, but in a nutshell, he gets one of the most lucrative parts of this broken empire. Wow. He gets the, the mortgage service division, which had a huge portfolio of properties. And, uh, and this is his foray into the Brooklyn scene. Uh, it actually, the first project he, he actually works on was the neighborhood I grew up in, in Marine what Park. What neighborhood is that? Marine Park. Yeah, th- there was a wonderful little development there uh, that dated back to the mid-1920s, um, right on East 33rd Street and Fillmore Avenue, right around the corner mm-hmm. from the park proper, Marine Park proper. And the original developer of those properties, a guy named Ruckheiser, uh, his, da- his daughter actually is a very famous poet, Mur- Muriel Ruckheiser. Um, but he went belly up. And then the company that took that over went belly up. Laren Krauss held the mortgages on these proper, on this development. Mm-hmm. And that's how Trump basically got it. And he finishes that project, does a beautiful job. They're nice houses. And then goes on in a series of moves to acquire huge empty parcels. Some of the last large empty land parcels in southern Brooklyn, in all mm-hmm. of Brooklyn. Many of which, several of which, ironically, were being used each year for the, the circus. And, wow. and so, so, you know, they weren't owned by the circus, but they were being leased. They were held by, by various owners, and he gets his hands on these. What really turbocharges his Brooklyn play is the federal government. During the Depression, I think it was 1934, FDR passes the National Housing Act. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was one part of it that created the Federal Housing Administration. And, and basically, uh, the federal government could now back. They could be the guarantor of last resort. Right. Right. And so uh, to back all sorts of developments, to, really to jumpstart the housing uh, market. And that's where... Trump was right at the forefront. Trump played that hand beautifully. And it was partly because the Federal Housing Administration, in order to be able to evaluate all these different potential funding projects to fund potentially, Mm -hmm. they came up really with the first national building standards, building Mm -hmm. codes, protocols for evaluating the the solidity or not of 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 a lender. Right. And, and what Trump does is he becomes an expert, especially on the building codes. Mm. He, know, he learns inside out what kind of plumbing systems, what kind of electrical, sewerage, all these systems, and, and, and gains the trust of the FHA administrator in New York City. It was a guy named Grace. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, then it's all, it's, it's a, it's the, the future it's is paved for him. Point. Yeah, he gets so, a lot of money through the government for these projects. So when Trump, President Trump, who now often refers to his father's operation as tiny, says that, it it, it was never... That's a a fabrication of great dimensions. It was huge. Fred Trump was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, developer in Brooklyn by the time we get to World War II. Mm-hmm. There had been a series of big developers that changed the face of Brooklyn, especially that part of Brooklyn that I call the outwash plain. Everything mm. south of the terminal moraine, you know, the terminal right. moraine running roughly from Bay Ridge 
across uh, here, yes. right? Prospect Park, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Crown Heights, um, all the way out to Montauk Point, basically. Mm-hmm. But, and then below that, south of the moraine, you have kind of the outwash plain that really does not fully develop until the 1920s. You had isolated developments here and there, Coney Island, parts of Bensonhurst, uh, Ditmas Park. But the real building boom, the great building boom, and really it was one of the largest building, residential building booms in American history, took place in the 20s. And mm-hmm. it was fired up by a bit of obscure tax legislation from Albany that gave builders a 10-year tax holiday. Mm-hmm. Right? So this jump-started, and, and the, it just went crazy. If you look at all these neighborhoods in in Bay Ridge, in in Bensonhurst, in Midwood, in Marine Park, Canarsie, Flatland, they all developed in this period. And the iconic architectural style of that era was like the Tudor revival. Yeah. I've mapped this using GIS and remote uh, GIS uh, databases, Mm -hmm. and you can see it by decade. It's like a great tide of brick and mortar that Right. roars across Brooklyn from the 20s to World War II. So that tells <clears> me <throat> that Fred Trump, in addition to being a man of means, was also a little bit, at least at this time, a man of focus and maybe even, one would say, vision he was that a I don't really see yeah. with, his, with his son. <laughs> I, 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 Fred Trump was brilliant. There's yeah. no doubt about that. He was a very creative uh, person. He was uh, very clever. He was um, he he was very capable of exploiting circumstances. He mm-hmm. comes. Remember, he comes very late to this game. Uh, in the, the the great 1920s building boom is petering out by the time he comes to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he graduates college around the time this is. I mean, not college. He graduates high school around the time this is really taking off. So by the time he gets to Brooklyn, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's right. it's kind of a wreckage. Uh, the, the the depression has 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 made a mess of things. So but he capitalizes on the federal element to really so charge. So that's his, why he focused on Brooklyn because yeah. you contrast Fred and Donald and about Fred being more focused on the outer boroughs. But I'm guessing yeah. that's specifically why he paid so much attention to Brooklyn is because of those. Federal- but the demand was there too, and okay. the and the land. You know, these parts of Brooklyn are not a stone's throw from Manhattan. It's why you can still afford a house in my part of Brooklyn as opposed to around here in Fort Greene and and in in Park Slope. Right. Uh, On the other hand, it it was close enough to Manhattan that it was was more viable in terms of uh, development and sales than going further out to Queens where there was actually right. still farmland in the in the in the 1930s. So Fred Trump got quite a bit of money from the government in order to yeah. develop here in sure. Brooklyn. And then he didn't want to pay his taxes? There was a, a there were a series of moments in which it was exposed uh, that he had uh, not reported all the income. He had misused some of the funds. He had paid exorbitant amounts for certain subcontractors and so forth. Yes, that that's coming, certainly, and, and is the beginning of his undoing. In fact, in the wake of that, he, he never really is able to get FHA funding again. Right up until World War II, you know, he, he is going gangbusters. And to get back to this notion of his creativity, mm-hmm. the guy was a real entrepreneur. He, uh, he, he was frugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, you know, there's this old story that he would, 
wander around on the building sites after his workers went home picking up the loot the nails that his carpenters had dropped and then he would like you know give them to them in the morning of course that was a silent reminder that i'm watching you constantly and you need to be more careful oh my god he was also very inventive in terms of advertising and marketing mm -hmm. and really way ahead of his time in in that regard so I want to go back just a little bit to when we were talking about, you know, uh, his relationship with the FHI after some of these tax issues. Was that normal for the time? Like, were there a lot of people trying to do the same thing? Or did it make him in any way special or he, unique? He, as far as I know, he really was. He wasn't the only one. Again, as far as I know, he was the first to really exploit this new mm. funding mechanism this new structure of, of loans and loan backings, loan guarantees. Uh, and he, he develops on a scale that no one else uh, was operating at that time. There had been large developers before in Brooklyn in the, in the 20s. There was, uh, in fact, this whole notion that he was the Henry Ford of housing. You know, he, he borrowed those ideas from an earlier developer in Brooklyn, a guy that nobody remembers. His name was William Grieve. He built all these so-called uh, realty houses that are mm -hmm. very popular still in Marine Park and, and parts of uh, East Flat, uh, Flatlands. William Grieve was the one who first applied these Ford, these Henry Ford techniques of mass, right. mass uh, production. Uh, production. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like the Henry Ford assembly line in reverse. You know, right. Instead of the items coming to the workers along a assembly line, right. it was reversed. The workers would go as a team to each site doing one specific task. The yeah. framers would come in and then the, you know, the Well, speaking plumbers. of Henry Ford, one of the things that Fred Trump has been criticized for, um, especially present day, was some of his more racist and restrictive uh, right. housing policies. Right. How did that play in as far as wealth accumulation um well as far as yeah any of those I mean, that's a huge subject you know the, there's no doubt that fred trump had views on race that we would consider pernicious egregious mm -hmm. terrible and he did he did a lot to restrict african americans from buying into his projects uh renting especially after World War II, mm -hmm. uh, when the number of African-Americans in Brooklyn was, was rising significantly. The, the, that was really the second wave of the Great Migration. You had a lot mm -hmm. of African-Americans coming into Brooklyn, not only from Virginia, North Carolina, but also from Harlem. Harlem by now was getting kind of pricey. Right. And a lot of blacks were coming into Bed-Stuy and, and other parts of Brooklyn from, from... So anyway, yes, there's no doubt. There's plenty of evidence that he discriminated. That said, all the developers were doing that back then. Mm, mm -hmm. Now, was it was he, of the time. Oh, totally. Yes. I mean, yeah. you look at Levittown, which is after the war. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was developed by, you know, a fellow who was the grandson of a rabbi, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there too, there were restrictive covenants against African Americans. The FHA itself built that into their lending structure ostensibly to preserve the value of properties uh, by, you know, segregating the races. So, right. so this, I'm not trying to give 
Fred Trump. No, there's pass. no pass. Every suburban and sort of uh, right. trolley burb development you had in this period had some kind of restrictive covenant. Right. What was his relationship like with politicians then? Oh, he was a master at, at uh, currying favor and mm. uh, becoming, uh, getting politicians to, to become indebted to him. He, he had lots of contacts in the, the, the Democratic machine. You know, some have argued that's one of the reasons why he got the Laren Krauss uh, deal. Wow. Because he had, he had um, you know, and, and Grace, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the fellow, I think his name was Thomas Grace. I may be wrong about that. But Grace, the administrator, the FHA administrator in New York City, was was an old ward boss, an old, mm-hmm. um, you know, Tammany functionary. So, so Fred Trump was a master at developing a, a network of you know favors right. and power, a power base that was rooted in the political machine. You know, speaking of his power, one of the things that Fred Trump <clears throat> gets charged with, especially around here, is the death of Coney Island. Fred Trump had a strange relationship with Coney Island. One of his more inventive marketing ploys Mm -hmm. was to, and this incurred the wrath of Robert Moses, the park commissioner at the time. Uh, In the late 30s, he hired a uh, fishing boat out of Shellbank Creek in Garrison Beach to, to be outfitted with these giant hoardings, these huge billboards advertising his housing projects. I think the ones up in, in, in East Flatbush and near Canarsie at the time. And, and he starts, he has the captain go up and down the beaches at Brighton Beach and Coney Island, blasting advertisements about, you know, really loud on these huge megaphones and playing patriotic music. Now, this, this was in an era when People right. felt compelled to stand up at attention when the Star Spangled Banner was played. So right. all these poor bathers on the beaches would get up and, you know, as the boat went by playing the, the, the national anthem. He also tossed inflatable coupons, basically, off the boat in the form of uh, little swordfish. Really? And each one was worth a, 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 a certain amount toward your purchase of a home. Some of them were worth, you know, a couple hundred dollars. So people would rush like maniacs into the surf to grab one of these little floating swordfish. Decades later, after World War II, Trump starts building in Coney Island, mm-hmm. very different from his pre-World War II work. The buildings he's developing before World War II are actually really wonderful. Mm-hmm. They are humanly scaled, they're picturesque, they add to the streetscape, they're, they've got a scale and an intimacy that just really makes for a wonderful pedestrian environment. They're good urbanism, basically. Mm-hmm. Little Tudor, he, he called them brick bungalows. Right. And they're, they're, they're really wonderful. And they've, they've, they were affordable, building affordable housing, not exactly something his son would take up with great fervor. Nope, don't think uh, so. Yeah, and so and they've lasted. They were well constructed, and they are still affordable. They mm-hmm. a lot of they're very popular. After World War II, though, the kind of building he's doing is totally different. Mm-hmm. He really imbibes the whole modernist shtick, uh, right. you know, hook, line, and sinker. So he's starting to build these towers in the park. Uh, monolithic uh, projects, uh, architecturally kind of dreary, yeah. not unlike the public housing projects that are being Stark. built at the time. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So they're 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 kind of grim, and they're not exactly the most wonderful urbanism. Very mm-hmm. different from his pre-war work. 
so he starts building these larger modernist kind of projects. I mean, his his largest of that type are built on the old Luna Park site and uh, later on Trump Village in Coney Island. He has his eyes also in the early 60s on the old Steeplechase Park property. Oh, okay. Now, Steeplechase Park was the first, the largest, and the last of the three great amusement parks that were the anchors of mm-hmm. Coney Island. There was Dreamland, Luna Park, and Steeplechase. Mm-hmm. Steeplechase held on to the bitter end. Coney Island was in, in steep decline by this time, by the early right. 1960s. The charge that Fred Trump destroyed Coney Island is not exactly accurate. At the end of the in current day Brooklyn, yeah, how much of the building structure of this city, when we look at it, should we think of Fred Trump? Well, Trump, even before World War II, built hundreds of homes. Actually, it, it, it's in the it's in the thousands uh, over his whole career in Brooklyn mm-hmm. alone. The pre-war work he did. Uh, has really stood this, the test of time. These are, mm-hmm. as I was saying earlier, it's, these are good, this is good urbanism. Uh, right. And people love these houses. They're very popular. They, when they go on the market, they sell very quickly. Right. They're small. Mm-hmm. And so they're affordable still. Right. They're not McMansions. Uh, right. And they've, uh, they're, they're, uh, you, you go to any of the neighborhoods where he built vast numbers of these brick bungalow buildings, mm-hmm. uh, East Flatbush, uh, 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 parts of East New York, Canarsie, Flatlands, Marine Park, they are uh, well-loved. Uh, and and uh, a great diversity of peoples live in these houses today. Right. Uh, so there's still a lot of positive Fred Trump around here. There, his, his pre-war building legacy right. in terms of architecture and urbanism was very positive. Right. Yeah. It's that later stuff. That we're it's the later about. stuff. <laughs> that we don't want. And he, he helped drive a nail in the coffin of Brooklyn by, you know, hastening along the decline of Coney Island, by yeah. destroying the great uh, pavilion of fun, right. which was the one of the architectural icons of the city. And you had that happen <laughs> almost at the same time that Penn Station was being torn down. The further we go, sometimes <laughs> it seems like the Hopefully not forever. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and our next guest is working to raise awareness about something we don't talk about much here in New York, female genital mutilation. I was surprised to learn that 65,000 women and girls are at risk here in New York City, and nearly half a million nationwide. To tell us more about it and a march planned for this coming Saturday, we're joined on the phone by Natasha Johnson, the event organizer. She is executive director and founder of Globalizing Gender. She's also an assistant professor and director of human services at Metropolitan College. Thanks for joining us today, Natasha. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us briefly about female genital mutilation and why women and girls everywhere, let alone here, might be in danger of being victimized? Absolutely. So female genital mutilation is an issue that um, it's a very old tradition. It goes back over 5,000 years. Much more prominent um, traditionally in Sub-Saharan Africa and in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. But we get that, you know, when people travel, they take their beliefs and their norms and their traditions with them. And so... 
female genital mutilation is now also an issue that merits our attention here in the United States, particularly in New York, because it's not just an immigrant issue, it's a women's rights issue and a children's rights issue, a maternal health issue, a mental health issue, and a public health issue, just to name a few. So it's an issue that, you know, merits the intention of everyone, because any woman or any individual that feels like their rights are being marginalized means that all of our rights are marginalized. Natasha, who are some of the women who are, I guess, the best way to say it, at high risk for female genital mutilation right here in New York? So, you know, part of the issue is that in New York City, female genital mutilation is criminalized. It's been a crime in New York City, uh, in New York State, rather, since 1997, and so is the issue of vacation cutting, and that's been criminal since 2015. So the issue of vacation cutting is a newer phenomenon to the concept of female genital mutilation, but because folks now live abroad and now live more distant, the issue of vacation cutting is a practice where friends and family members take their daughters back to their home countries of origin and get them cut there during winter break, spring break, and summer break. So knowing that, um, the, the young folks who are most at risk here are probably going to be adolescent school-age girls. Can you tell us really quickly about the event this Saturday to raise awareness? Yeah, so, you know, this coming Saturday, and we hope everybody comes out, this is a completely inclusive event. We're going to start at City Hall because it's the epicenter of our city, and we get that this issue is happening in every borough. And the goal is to start at City Hall. We're going to gather there and assemble around 9 a.m. We're going to start walking at City Hall, and we're going to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge as a unit and end up in Prospect Park. And we're going to have some performances and events, presentations that will be taking place and some music. And Prospect Park will be at uh, Oriental Pavilion, Concert Grove, which is right there at the corner of Lincoln Road and Ocean Avenue. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we'll be there from 12 to 3, and there'll be information, resource tabling, in addition to music and celebration. Because the goal is to raise awareness, but also the goal is for folks to get that this is a issue where there's no judgment, but we do right. want folks to be informed and educated about what their resources and access is to help while they're here in New York City. And we want to celebrate them. We want to celebrate the folks who've experienced this and who survived it. And we want to provide information for folks who need it. And we want to make sure that, you know, all of our city agencies, that they get the magnitude of this issue, Mm -hmm. that we can go back to the table after October 13th and really start to have some qualitative conversations around how to make sure that we're building in city resources that are going to best serve these communities. And how can people find you guys online? Okay, get your pins out because this is a long URL. (laughs) (laughs) www.endfgmnewyork, New York York is spelled all the way out, dot wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, dot com, backslash home, backslash the, hyphen, the, hyphen, march. Let me repeat that. So if you want to learn more, if you want to donate or you want to register, www.endfgmnewyork.wixsite.com backslash home backslash the hyphen the hyphen march. You can also, apparently, <laughs> Google V March and Globalizing Gender and find this. So thank you so much for talking with us today, Natasha. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And we look forward to seeing you guys out there on Saturday. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye.
And now some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. A religious goods store owner drugged and raped two women during sham religious ceremonies in his Flatbush home, according to the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. On Wednesday, 51-year-old Nigel Kennedy was arraigned on rape charges. Prosecutors say he could face up to 25 years in prison on a 13-count indictment that includes rape and sexual abuse. Anyone who may have been a victim of Kennedy is asked to call the Brooklyn DA's Action Center at 718-250-2340. Borough President Eric Adams and school's chancellor Richard Carranza joined up at the Brooklyn Navy Yard on Thursday to reveal plans for an ambitious new education project, a multi-million dollar STEAM center for Brooklyn high schoolers. The center, which focuses on science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, STEAM, received a $5 million investment from Borough Hall. And students will have access to computer labs, construction spaces, a TV broadcasting soundstage, a culinary education kitchen, and more when construction is completed. Was that a llama running around Borough Park? Yes, it was. Motorists and pedestrians were caught off guard as a runaway llama strolled across 14th Avenue and 54th Street. This furry friend was on the lam from a Borough Park petting zoo and seemed to say, chill out friends, I'll pack up my bags and go. I'll pack up my bags and go, get it? For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at BKLYNER.com. Thanks for watching and see you next week. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Kritzi Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.